Hello and welcome to the Wilson Center series, Hindsight Upfront Ukraine. I'm Center President Ambassador Mark Green. Hindsight Upfront is in line with our special congressional mandate to draw on deep scholarship and to better understand the world around us. In this case, Russia's tragic, terrible war on Ukraine. We've spoken with a slew of people for their insights. Baroness Kathy Ashton, Michelle Flournoy, Bob Zelik, war crimes expert Ambassador Clint Williamson, Turkish and German officials, U.S. lawmakers from both sides of the aisle, and more. You can find those interviews and a wealth of insights on Putin's war on Ukraine by visiting our website, wilsoncenter.org slash hindsight Ukraine. The war on Ukraine has been called an era-defining conflict. There is no doubt that its fallout is touching countless lives, reshaping economic relationships, and testing alliances. It seems that the region will never be the same. Few people have greater experience with these issues than our guest today, Ambassador Kurt Volker. Kurt served as U.S. Special Representative for Ukraine negotiations from 2017 to 2019 and U.S. Ambassador to NATO in 2008 and 2009. These days, among other things, he's a distinguished fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis. Kurt, welcome. It's great to have you. Mark, great to be here. Thank good, you. Good to see you again. So we are entering the fifth month of the war. Yeah. Where are we? Well, we're at a bad phase at the moment. It's a temporary bad phase, I believe. Uh, we saw the beginnings of the war, uh, Putin's overreach, thinking he's going to eliminate Ukraine as a country and rub it off the map. Uh, that failed completely. The Ukrainians fought back brilliantly. They drove the Russians away from Kiev, from uh, Odessa, from Kharkiv, from uh, Sumy, from Chernihiv, all of these major cities. Right push the Russians back. Um, this has assured Ukraine's survival as a sovereign, independent European state. And every word there is significant. Uh, now the Russians have regrouped in the east mm -hmm. and they've set a more limited objective of taking all of the Donbas region of Ukraine, uh, which includes the Luhansk and Donetsk oblasts, right. which they have labeled independent republics. And here the Russians have shorter supply chains they have concentrated their forces a lot more. They are pounding the Ukrainians with artillery every day. Some estimates are as many as 60,000 rounds a day. Uh, so they are inching forward. The Ukrainians are basically doing a rope-a-dope right now. They're, mm -hmm. they're letting the Russians fight themselves to exhaustion mm -hmm. so that when they get our better equipment and it gets integrated into their forces, they'll be able to act more strategically and take back some territory. And uh, we're going to see continued heavy shelling and brutality uh, for much of this summer and a lot of casualties on both sides. And then you're going to see the Ukrainians, I think, moving ahead in taking area around Mikolaev and ultimately the city of Kherson in the south, pushing back the Russians further away from Kharkiv. And they're going to be looking to break that land bridge again. And these, I think, will be very difficult fights for the Ukrainians, but I think the Russians truly will have exhausted themselves. And uh, I can go on and on about yeah. the challenges the Russians are facing. But. Well, so one thing I saw that was interesting was the reminder that everybody talks about oil and gas, but Russia's second largest export are weapons. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they are exhausting weapons pretty quickly and obviously the sanctions against them are making it really difficult to yeah. fulfill their supplies contracts with others and that that potentially is an opportunity for the U.S. and the West to sure. take some of those over. 
Well, yeah, um, everybody's having supply chain issues. Right. And even on weapons. E yeah, even on weapons, even the United States. And I've talked to some people in industry here who are saying that, you know, we don't have as much margin in our production capacity mm -hmm. as we would like to. We have drawn down stocks in order to supply them to the Ukrainians. Congress has authorized the money to replenish, but there's a time factor involved right. here. And industry needs a long-term commitment to say not only are we saying, you know, we need X number of javelins as soon as possible, but we're going to be buying these things for a long period mm -hmm. of time, and our allies are going to be buying these things, so ramp up your production capacity. Mm -hmm. And industry is still trying to gauge, are we getting that kind of commitment from the administration or right. not? And uh, one very thoughtful suggestion I had uh, from a friend who used to work at uh, Defense Industry, he's out now, uh, is we should be putting in a 20% margin on our own military needs. So when we do a buy, we should be buying 20% more in order to create a stockpile because right. we are always doing this sort of thing and our allies are going to need it as well. Yeah, interesting. So you, uh, you just used the term uh, rope-a-dope, uh, which conjures up images for people of yeah. uh, your vintage and mine. <laughs> uh, and in rope-a-dope, in Muhammad Ali's rope-a-dope, when the rope-a-dope was occurring, we wouldn't say that he was winning, but we would say that he was making it possible to win. Is right. that how you see it? That's how I see it. Uh, yeah, so let's talk a little bit about what's going wrong with the mm -hmm. Russians here. Um, they have had um, about a third of their conventional military capability wiped out already, mm -hmm. which is astonishing. They are now pulling out of storage second-rate equipment, older equipment, T-62s rather than T-90s. Um, so they're not putting the best stuff forward. Personnel as well, they're putting uh, recruits into combat situations after very limited training right. and people who are not motivated to be there fighting. Uh, so they have had a very hard time with equipment and with personnel. And then you mentioned supply chains. Uh, they're having trouble with chips. They're having trouble with payments. They're having trouble uh, with precision-guided munitions now. They're, they've run very low on precision-guided munitions, and they're using a lot of more dumb bombs, which right. they can manufacture and they can keep throwing them at the Ukrainians. But as most military experts will tell you, that's not going to win the war. Yeah, <laughs> that's going right. to just burn well, and burn. So, on, on the other hand, they're still getting uh, close to a billion dollars a day in oil they revenue. And, and that and is shameful. China's... Uh, just upped and hit its highest level of purchase, but you got to have something to purchase. So yeah. they've got revenue coming in, but what you're suggesting is that they don't have the means to replace, to actually purchase right. the parts that they need, the chips yeah. that they need. And take the oil industry and the gas industry as an example. All of the uh, major Western oil and gas companies have pulled out. So now they're running on what works. Mm -hmm. And over time, as everyone yeah, knows, sure. yep. you start degrading your fields, you start degrading your equipment, they're going to be running into some trouble. And the Europeans are facing a crunch. They have been too slow to find alternatives to Russian gas in particular. Mm -hmm. Oil's easier, but too slow in finding alternatives to Russian gas. The Russians are now squeezing them, and that squeeze will get tighter as we get closer to the winter. Right. So the Ukrainians uh, are determined to fight and retake their territory. The Europeans will be tempted to say, oh, give something up so we can have some I, peace. I, I think uh, Mr. Macron... Uh, He's already out there. Is, He's is already, already out there. there. But Shameful. the decision that you, the Europeans really need to be making mm. is we can't live 
with this genocidal maniac next right. door to us anymore. Right. <laughs> We've got to got to create right. security. Yeah, and actually, that's something I I want to get to in a moment. But um, and you point out the casualties. They they the Russians have lost as many as they lost in ten years in Afghanistan, more. More. and more significantly, five hundred over five hundred high ranking officials who you don't just replace like no, this from right. re reserves and new recruits. And that's a that's a command and control issue as well. You don't have motivated forces. Uh, the political leadership holds the top generals accountable, right. who hold the next layer accountable. But at a certain point, that breaks down. There's no trust and there's no execution. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing one and two star generals go further forward into the field. Right. Their comms are not good, so they get on the cell phone network or they're in an exposed right. position. And they've had, you know, I, I haven't checked the latest number, but close to a dozen senior generals. Yeah, yeah. Well, and... Um, it, it seems as though the only way Russia captures land is to essentially destroy everything yes. and then wander in after they've wiped That's exactly clean. exactly the case with uh, Mariupol. It's what they're doing in Severodonetsk now. And they don't have any other example of taking something without destroying it, with one exception, right. which is Kherson, mm -hmm. which is in the south. Right. And some of my Ukrainian friends have told me that there were some collaborators who uh, did not blow up the bridges when they were supposed to. The Russians got in. Right. And uh, they say that is now uh, one of the prime targets for the Ukrainian forces is to cut these bridges, cut off right. the Russian supplies and force them on the other side of the river again. And reverse it. Yeah. Um, so we talked a bit about Europe, uh, your one-time portfolio, NATO. Mm -hmm. um, what's your gauge of how they performed? Well, you have to look at both sides of this. Right. So NATO's number one job, why there is a NATO, mm -hmm. is the uh, collective defense of its members, mm -hmm. defense and deterrence. And here you have to give them an A+. Right. Uh, there has been no attack on a NATO member. There's no threat to a NATO member. We have increased the U.S. troop presence in Europe to 100,000 from close to 30 to 40,000 where we were. We've put NATO uh, country forces further forward, Romania, Poland, Baltic states. All allies are doing this, not just the United States. Mm -hmm. Germany's committed to get to 2% of GDP on defense spending. Others are increasing defense spending. So on its number one job, you have to say NATO's done a very good job. Number two job of NATO was crisis management. Mm -hmm. And here you have to give them a failing grade mm -hmm. uh, because mm -hmm. this is the biggest war in Europe since World War right. II. More displaced people, more people killed, and NATO is not doing anything. Uh, right. NATO countries individually, United States by a factor of 10, right. UK, Poland, right. they are doing things right. to help a lot. But NATO is not even doing a simple clearinghouse function of taking Ukrainian requests and farming them out to allies and partners and, and yeah. doing this. This is something that the U.S. is doing unilaterally now out of Ramstein when this is something that NATO could be doing. So I think NATO has not distinguished itself as being relevant and effective at crisis management during the biggest war in Europe. And then there's the third thing, which is the, uh, the future. And here, I think NATO is in, you know, in the balance right, right. now. They're supposed to be writing a strategic concept for NATO this mm -hmm. year and publishing this. Worst possible timing to do this. Uh, because the reality is how the war ends is going to define what NATO right. is in the future. And you have Finland and Sweden 
deciding it is no longer safe in Europe to be a neutral country. This is critically important. They're very capable allies, have great air forces. The, the Finns have had F-18s and F-35s. The Swedes make their own fighter aircraft. Um, they're very capable countries, and they're going to be great allies. Snag with Turkey, but I'm optimistic mm -hmm. we'll get through that. And eventually. then Denmark has adjusted its posture, right, yep. in the way yep. it, it, it exactly. trains with NATO. Exactly. So I think that's a vote of confidence in NATO. That's the only safe club to be in. Yeah. And once the war is over, we, you know, we can guess what it'll look like, but we don't know until we know. Uh, I don't think you can leave these gray zones open anymore. Right. Uh, Georgia, Ukraine, yeah. Moldova. Yeah. You can't just leave parts of Europe open for Putin to decide that, hey, I'm going to take it. Yeah. Um, you made reference to what some are calling uh, the Russification efforts that they've done, uh, that Putin's mm -hmm. done in the East. Um, how difficult is that to unwind? I would say it's going to be incredibly difficult for him yeah. to execute rather than unwind. Mm -hmm. um, the, well, what about the areas, for example, that they occupy now? Yeah. So, but take Mariupol mm -hmm. or, or take Kharkiv or take Severodonetsk, where he has leveled cities, shelled cities, killed civilians. He's killing Russian, Russian speakers, mm -hmm. people who identify as, you know, I'm, I'm an ethnic Russian. Right. I'm a Ukrainian citizen right. and I'm an ethnic Russian. Uh, those are the people he's killing. The majority of people in the armed forces of Ukraine are ethnic Russians. They're mm -hmm. fighting against Russia as a state because Russia is attacking them and taking their homes and territory. Right. And they don't want to be part of Russia. Uh, you have partisan resistance in some of these places that Russia has taken over. Uh, Melitopol, for example. Mm -hmm. um, these are, again, Russians right. conducting campaigns against the imposed occupation by the state of Russia. So Russia has created and reinforced uh, to the point of no return a Ukrainian national identity where these right. people know who they are, they know who they're not, and they're fighting for their homes. Now, as to what they're doing, they're giving people passports. Right. They are organizing occasionally some fake referendums. They're paying people to be in civil administration. So you have collaborators who are taking the cash. Right. I think as soon as Russian forces are pushed out of territories like that, everything disappears. That it doesn't, mm -hmm. doesn't last a day after that. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, so a, a couple of tougher questions. Uh, what would you say that Zelensky's interests are the same as the Biden administration's now as we look at this? Well, that's a really tough question, as you yeah. say, because uh, I see Ukraine's success and winning the war and defeating Putin as a vital American interest. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure the administration sees it that way. Yeah. Uh, Zelensky certainly sees it that way. That That's his, sure. his survival right. in his country. Over and, and over again. And he could never remain as president of Ukraine if he agreed to give up territory. People would throw him out and they'd get somebody in who's going to fight. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so he's, he's determined to fight because he knows his country. Uh, I think the Biden administration uh, is trying to set some limit somewhere. Uh, we're not directly involved in the fighting. We don't want Russia to be fighting against mm -hmm. us. We don't want them to widen the war to go against NATO allies. We don't want it to be appear that it's a, a U.S.-Russia war, but this is Russia's war on Ukraine. We're not providing the long range, the longest range artillery that we could do. We didn't help on the fighter aircraft when we right. should have. Um, we haven't 
done freedom of navigation operations in the Black Sea to get things moving, as we should be doing. So there's a lot that we are holding back right. on. E even the start of sanctions. Instead yes. of ramping them up before they yes. take a while. We all agree. That's a sad story. The administration agrees, has said, look, they're going to take a while, but Bef started late. They, they claimed, and I, you, know, yeah. you have Tony Blinken and others claiming before the war started, that, oh, we should not be imposing sanctions now because then they would lose their deterrent effect. Right. And that's just crazy because you ought to, when you can see the military buildup and the explicit threats being made by Russia against Ukraine, we should be sanctioning that behavior right. and saying, we'll loosen up the sanctions if you stand down. Well, and, and, <laughs> and also a few weeks into the war after the February 24th invasion, the president said, well, it was never meant to deter, it was to raise up the cost. Well, it, assume that logic for a moment and everyone's saying, look, it's going to take a while for the cost to kick in, then why in the world didn't you start well, exactly. before things? Yeah, exactly. So. Well, uh, yeah, he said that. It directly contradicts what his administration was saying mm -hmm. before the war started. Right. And it again gets to this question that is tied to your, your question about alignment of interest. Is our objective here to just respond right. and say, okay, we're not happy, so here's a sanction, or okay, you're being attacked, here's a javelin, or is our objective to see a strategic outcome that advances U.S. interests and European interests and along with that Ukrainian interests? Mm -hmm. the, the way I would say this is that we would never have launched into this kind of support for Ukraine and the, the, the military role that we're playing without Russia's invasion and war crimes. But now that we're in it, right. it's an opportunity to uh, complete the job of securing Europe that we didn't do after the end of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't you also say, given the tactics that we've seen, so not just the war crimes, but the fact that you're unleashing on the rest of Europe and elsewhere millions of displaced yes. people who, um, you know, God willing, they go home. Yep. History suggests that many will not. But in any case, you're affecting the economies everywhere. And of course, as you know, I'm an Africa guy mm -hmm. and you've destroyed the agricultural economy yeah. in some parts of Africa. Aren't all of these, didn't, didn't Putin choose to make this essentially a world war? I mean, we may be talking about it in yeah. bilateral terms, but well, when you take over Chernobyl, mm -hmm. <laughs> when you yeah. launch refugee populations throughout Europe, uh, when you impact the economies of all of your neighbors, it would seem to me that yeah. that's no longer a bilateral conflict. Yeah, he, uh, several things there. I laugh when you raised Chernobyl, because you know what the Russians did? They took over the Chernobyl area and then they dug trenches yeah. and they stirred up all the radioactive stuff and then their own people got sick and then realized, oh, that wasn't so smart. <laughs> <Not the best. laughs> and meanwhile, the Ukrainians are perfectly trained and capable and know how to contain yeah. the radiation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that was a disaster. What Putin has done, and he's now said it openly, with, uh, you know, a lot of us knew this and a lot right. of us were writing about this, but he's now said it openly. He is reestablishing the Russian Empire. Right. Uh, he has compared himself to Peter the Great and the accumulator so of Russian So do you lands. think, I'm going to touch upon that, because it, it gets back to something you said earlier. Um, do you, are, are you confident that we know what Putin's original objectives are? And uh, secondly, how much of those changed from those original yeah. objectives? Right. I don't believe that his objectives have changed at all. 
I believe that his means to achieve them have been proven to be ineffective. And that means he is going to go more incrementally. Mm -hmm. But he has made it clear that he does not believe that Ukrainians or Ukraine as a state exist, mm -hmm. that they are a, a fiction. They right. are actually all Russians. And Russia has an entitlement to take Ukraine and Belarus mm -hmm. and all the rest of right. the former Soviet states. And so he has laid that out there clearly now. He has no way back from that. His survival, his future, his, his legacy is tied up mm -hmm. in reestablishing the empire. And that is where you say, is this a world war, a global war? Uh, this is something that is a threat to Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, it right, is not sure. just a threat yeah. to Ukraine. Uh, Baltic states, you know, they heard what he said. When Peter the Great accumulated lands, it was them. Yeah, <laughs> it was exactly. the Baltic sure. states that were accumulated. Yeah. Um, and Sweden was defeated. Um, and Europe will face a uh, dictator with an appetite for aggression uh, that will be impacting the rest of Europe. And you mentioned right. the refugees, and, and quite rightly, uh, this is a massive refugee outpouring from Ukraine. Most Ukrainians that I know can't wait to go home. Um, they, uh, they are very patriotic. They mm -hmm. want their house back. They want to rebuild the country. Uh, I just did an interview for uh, Ukrainian television here in, in Washington this week. And the journalist you know, was so conflicted that she's, she was assigned here before the war. She's here doing her job. But she wants to go back. She's Ukrainian. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and, and that gets to me to be the uh, key part to all this as we look ahead. So if, if we somehow end up in what some have called a frozen conflict or, or you know, somehow Putin does get his off ramp, won't he simply have achieved destroying and crippling Ukraine, paying actually relatively little costs and consequences for it, and then simply wait? Restock. Yeah. Yes. Reload. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. And that's why, first off, the Ukrainians will not settle. Um, mm -hmm. They view the 2014 settlement, the Minsk agreements, as a betrayal. Uh, they say that we should never have accepted that Russia was taking part of our territory, and that laid the conditions for the new invasion in 2022. Wouldn't like what he got and That's thought right. it worked so pretty well. Do it again. Yeah. And they are now determined to fight back and say, no, we're going to take back all of the territory. We, we cannot accept Russian occupation of part of our territory anymore. Mm -hmm. Now, do they have the means to do it? Not on their own. They, right. they need the help from the West. Uh, I hope that we have the, the courage and the determination to keep it up. Yeah, I mean, I, I, thinking about how this could look two, three, four years from now in, in, in the darker way that, that we don't see victory. So let's say Putin's allowed to hold on to some of the mm -hmm. Ukrainian territory after February 24th. Um, sanctions eventually start to wind yeah. down. Ukraine is forced to forswear NATO. Mm -hmm. um, Putin, who has been called a war criminal and guilty of atrocities, isn't in the dock, which is mm -hmm. not likely to be. If the funds for building places like Mariupol uh, are coming from not reparations but the West, mm -hmm. if the cost of supporting displaced Ukrainians who would like to go home but can't go home if it's a frozen conflict in those areas, if those costs are paid not by reparations but the West, 
And if Russia is somehow allowed to continue to be the largest supplier of natural gas, then how is that a successful income outcome, right. right? Right. And it isn't, you know, and some of those things you, you know, you can quibble over and some of them you can say, well, that's likely. The war crimes one, um, I agree with you, he will not be transferred by Russia mm -hmm. to The Hague to face mm -hmm. justice. Just never going to happen. But it's important that the collection of information takes place, that the prosecution takes place, mm -hmm. that he is identified as a war criminal responsible for ordering the mass killing of civilians and the rape of women and the killing of children mm -hmm. and all of that. Because that will cement his status as a pariah and Russia's status as a pariah as long as he leads Russia. Mm -hmm. And I think we're already there. I don't think anyone right. is anxious to go have a meeting with Putin now. Mm -hmm. uh, but that will cement that. And that will be Russia paying a cost for a very long time. That will keep sanctions in place. Uh, so that everything we were talking about earlier about the degradation of Russia's economy and industries that mm -hmm. is taking place will continue. Um, payments are going to be a really big issue. Russia will be declared to be in default before too long. Right. There's just no way they can make the payments. That's going to increase their borrowing costs and increase their state financing problems. On the reparations, we have the facility to pass a law and seize the assets and use them. Europeans are more cautious about this. They, they mm -hmm. say that they really can't do it. Um, and they may provide you know, low-cost financing to the Ukrainians, but we'll start off with $200, $250 billion that is from right. Russian Central Bank saying, here's a down payment on rebuilding Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And the- Take a lot more yeah, than that. And the, and the key thing, and I, I said this at the beginning, but I want to come back to it. Ukraine survives as a sovereign, independent European democracy. This is, this is critically important. Mm -hmm. um, doesn't, you know, we, we'll see where the border is. We hope they get their entire right. territory back. There will be a border somewhere. But Ukraine is now seen as part of the European family. They're being offered candidate status to join the EU this week. Uh, they will open accession negotiations probably by next year. Uh, they uh, have established their identity as a, as a state, as a European state. Everyone feels themselves to be Ukrainians and proud to be Ukrainians. So Ukraine is not going away. That is the first failure for Putin and the first success right. for Ukraine. From that, everything else follows. Uh, mm -hmm. Ukraine will rebuild. Ukraine will become a successful democracy and economy. Uh, Russia will be an aggressor under sanctions, pariah state, until they change or until they withdraw. Mm -hmm. uh, the EU will be strengthened by Ukrainian membership, something that most people don't think about. Right. Ukraine has every natural resource you would ever want. They have oil, they have gas, they have mm -hmm. great renewable sources, they have minerals, they have mining, they have talented workforce. They're the second largest tech industry in Europe. They're, they're a bargain. Yeah, <laughs> sure. The EU is going to do well out of this. And likewise, I think once the war is over or stabilized in some way, I think we're going to have to come back to the NATO questions again, say, how do we secure Europe mm -hmm. so we don't have wars in the future? Um, my own, I, I mean, I, I agree with much of what you have said. It, it seems to me that um, the only real answer to what we're each of us is posing is victory and that yeah. anything short of that is right. in some ways a betrayal um, of our economic and uh, democratic interests. 
And I will say this week, this last week, we marked the 40th anniversary of the Westminster speech, mm -hmm, Reagan's mm -hmm, Westminster right. speech. And I was asked about, um, you know, how I felt about the Westminster uh, speech applicability to today. And I said, the most disappointing thing to me is that Reagan called for a global campaign to assist democracy. And yet we see too many democracies these days that are timid mm -hmm. in standing up for That's other right. people's democracies. Um, uh, that does uh, that does need to change. So uh, I think what we're both saying is uh, victory must be the goal. Yeah. It must be clearly stated, full-throated. Yeah. Uh, final question or two is how do we get there? How do right. we get to victory? Right. Um, several thoughts immediately come mm -hmm. to my mind. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, and, yeah. uh, the first thing is stop self-limiting. Right. You know, and, and stop and stop telling everybody what you want. Exactly. Yeah. That's that's the first thing. Let let the Russians guess. Don't limit ourselves. The Ukrainians say they want aircraft. Let them get aircraft. They want to have longer range artillery. Let them have the longer range artillery. It's up to them to decide what they're going to do with it. It's not right. for us to be right. limiting in this way. Uh, that's one thing because I think the Ukrainians have proven to be both tenacious fighters and ingenious mm -hmm. uh, at the way mm -hmm. that they have have fought this. Um, second thing, we need to get. The port of Odessa open. Right. Uh, Ukraine produced before the war a quarter of the world's uh, wheat supply. Uh, that's going to be felt in Africa, as you said. And 40% of what goes to the World Food Program, which is, yes, is huge. Uh, huge. It's absolutely huge. So we should, be we should be talking to Turkey and we should be getting a clear understanding with Turkey. Russia is unilaterally undermining the Montreux Conventions mm -hmm. by claiming to block access to whole swathes right. of the Black Sea. So we have to have uh, NATO country warships in the Black Sea conducting point-to-point -point freedom of navigation operations like our country has done for 240 years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this mm -hmm. is what we do. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing to clean up the international waters. Then we need a coalition of states including non-NATO countries, including countries, you know, say Egypt would be a great right. example, who have an interest in the Ukrainian commerce and escort merchant ships in and out. Mm -hmm. And Ukrainians have to have the, the anti-ship systems. We have to have warships nearby um, and escorts could be taking things in and out. But we have to get this port open. We need to do it quickly, too, because this year's harvest is going to need a right. place to go. Um, Another thing that we could do to make sure um, that we win, if, you, if, if we put it that way, uh, it is to start talking about the end of the war. What does this look like? Mm -hmm. uh, the, the EU right. is beginning to do this and saying Ukraine candidate status will be a part of the EU. We should be saying this about uh, Russia will live within its borders. We do not accept a Russian empire. Mm -hmm. We don't want a war with Russia. We want peace with Russia. But Russia has to live within its borders. And we are going to be working to support the democracy and the security of every other state in Europe. Um, I agree. Um, these are interesting times. I think the challenge will be making sure that our friends and allies uh, stick to it. Yep. It's going to be bumpy along the way. Yep. It's not always going to be easy. But uh, victory sounds like a pretty good end result. Yeah, to me. I think it's where we have to go. I, I, I know it's hard. I know it's costly, but the costs of not winning, and seeing a Russian empire with designs on other countries that has our allies by the throat and their energy supplies and everything else, uh, it's not an acceptable outcome. We, and we and don't controlling, as you put it, uh, food for food security. 
but fertilizers yep. and the whole bit yep. uh, will have a profound impact. Kurt, thank you. Mark, really thank appreciate you. your I, thoughts. I admire your series here doing this. This well, is a great public service. Thank you. I uh, appreciate it very much. And uh, if you'd like to get more, again, go to the wilsoncenter.org slash hindsight upfront Ukraine. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. All right. Thank you.